0: Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. There's an amazing moment when you're driving a car and you find power that you didn't know existed. Now, I grew up driving my mom's grocery getter. It was, a, it was a Cutlass Sierra, okay? And from the time I was 16, in true 16-year-old fashion, I would try to see how fast it would go, which, which wasn't that fast. Then my senior year in, uh, in high school, I was afforded the opportunity to buy uh, my grandfather's pickup truck. It was a Mazda B2000 with a stick shift, it had a top end of about 55. And so I got used to driving that on the highway, and I got used to the fact that you had to keep it with the pedal all the way to the floor in order to be able to stay with traffic. Because I grew up in Houston, right? So that's a, a contact sport there. <laughs> but for prom, a man at my church let me borrow his 19... 89 Eldorado Coupe and I was not used to driving it and so we get it out on the highway and it's me and my best friend and the two girls that we were taking to prom it wasn't Shannon (laughs) and we get out on the highway and I did what came natural I put that pedal all the way to the floorboard and we had a different experience. (laughs) I swear that we squealed the tires doing 60 and it was so smooth and so easy we were just talking and before I knew it, I looked down at the speedometer and we were going 100 miles an hour. On 59, going into Houston, I had to back off of that. There was power there. Right? There was power that I had no idea existed under the hood of that car. And, and the story that we're going to read this morning, the story that we're going to talk about this morning, is about what it's like when that kind of power, and indeed a power that is far more potent than that, gets dropped on the church in an instant. Now, as you know, we've been going through the book of Acts for the last couple of weeks, and we've talked about the ascension of Jesus. We've talked about the great commissioning as he sends his church out. We've read about how they sat and they waited in Jerusalem, and they selected a new disciple to to replace Judas. We talked about how churches deal with conflict, and and all the time there's this kind of anticipation. There's this this bated breath as we're waiting to see what it's going to be like when they receive the helper that Jesus has been promising. And we finally come to that moment. We finally come to the moment when the promise that Jesus made to his church is fulfilled. And the great helper comes. And a power, the likes of which they could not imagine, is dropped on them in a heartbeat. Our story begins with the disciples gathered in Jerusalem where Jesus had left them about two weeks previously. We read, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, sometimes when we're reading things like this, we, we kind of skip over those and we're like, okay, it was Pentecost, cool. But, but to understand the deep meaning behind everything that happens, we've got to kind of dig into that a little bit. Pentecost is, comes from uh, the Greek word pente for five, and it had to do with 50 days, right? That's kind of, the, that's kind of what it meant in Greek, 50 days, and, and it was the celebration that occurred 50 days after the... Passover, right? After the first, and the way that they would measure it is after the first cutting of wheat, 50 days later, they would have Pentecost, and it was a harvest festival. Now, there's multiple harvest festivals as we go through the Old Testament, right? There were three major harvest festivals, and Pentecost is the one that comes right in the middle, but by the time that Jesus had come, Pentecost had taken on a whole lot of extra meaning, because see, Pentecost was when the Jews would come together, and they would celebrate the covenant of Noah and God. The time that Noah was rescued, God came to him after the waters receded and God said, I promise you, I will never again wipe man off the face of the earth with water. I will never again do that again. And they made a, they made a covenant and he, he, uh, he killed some stuff and, uh, and it was really good. And we had a, a whole covenant that existed after that. And then they also celebrated the giving of the law. At Sinai. And so it becomes this celebration where Passover is the celebration of the God who forgives. Pentecost becomes the celebration of the covenants and the God who gives law. And so all of these people had come into town. In in many ways, we hear a lot about Passover, but Pentecost was the celebration that had the biggest crowds because it was a nicer time of the year. Right? It was later on in the year. It was more towards summer. The roads were more clear. And so they, uh, the, the things that I was reading was saying that, that Pentecost was the celebration where the most people came in to Jerusalem. And so we read that there were God-fearing people from all over the Roman world that had come in to Jerusalem. These are people who felt deeply called that they needed to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost with God's people in Jerusalem. And so the disciples have been waiting and praying. We, we read that That Jesus uh, rose and ascended 40 days after he rose. And so now 50 days after Passover. So it's been about two weeks. They've been in the upper room. They've been praying. They've replaced Judas and they're, they're prepared. And they've just been praying. They've been coming together, praying with one spirit, with one mind. I know that, that some of you who come on Wednesday night or some of you who come on Tuesday morning, we, we have like an hour where we come together and we're just like immersed in prayer and, and we're praying with one heart and one mind and it's amazing. And I, and I think, like, can you imagine what it must have been like to pray for two weeks with people that had just seen the risen Christ? People that had, that had, that had seen these amazing things happen in there. They're being prepared. And so now as everyone comes in to celebrate the old covenant God prepares to lay out the new covenant he begins to, he prepares to declare the new covenant with his people so we read as God pours out his holy spirit on the 120 men and women that have been waiting and praying right this experience of God Laying out the Holy Spirit is audible, and it's physical, and it's visible. This isn't a still, small voice in the back of your head saying, hey, you should go and do this. No, no, no. This is one of those those moments where God pulls back the curtain and begins to display his glory. And we read, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested one on each of them. Now, I think it's important as we go through this and look at this that we we realize that Luke is using very symbolic language. Like every time he says something, it's like, oh, it was like a wind. They were like fire. Because this is something so supernatural, something so amazing, that he doesn't have categories or language to be able to describe it. God is manifesting himself to his people in a very real way. A very substantive and a very symbolically important way. We, we have this first image this, of the rushing wind that comes and, and it's loud. And it's, the, the words that are used describe what something that we would call like a tornado. So if anybody here has ever been in a tornado, I remember when I was a little boy and a tornado came and hit the church next to our house. And I remember huddling in the center hallway of our house as the lightning flashed like a strobe light and the hails coming in sideways. And, it's, and they say, you know, it sounds like a freight train. It sounds like a freight train when a hurricane, when a tornado comes in. That's what they heard. They heard this massive, overpowering wind come into the place. And we become reminded of the fact that God so often speaks to his people in the midst of the storm. Right? We, we, we see, we go back, we remember Elijah who has gone and, and God speaks to him after the storm has moved through. We, we think about, about Job who ha- having poured his heart out to God and questions God, God comes to him and speaks to him out of the world when it says, gird yourself up like a man. And let me ask you some questions. Over and over again, we hear God coming to us in the midst of a storm but then something else amazing happens even as this wind as this breath of god is breathed on his people breathing new life into his church as this is happening tongues as a fire descend on the disciples Right? And again, we have this imagery of fire, and fire permeates the Old Testament as well. Right? We have these images of divine fire throughout the Old Testament. One of the, the best examples that we have, right, one of my, one of my favorite scenes is in, in, in the book of First Chronicles when uh, Solomon has built a temple and he's killed all the goats, they put everything up there, and God consecrates his own temple by bringing down fire from the sky to consume it all. Or again, on Mount Carmel, as Elijah stands alone against the 450 prophets of Baal, and he builds an altar, and he digs a trench around, it and he douses everything with water, and he puts the animals on top of it, and again, God rains down fire. Consecrating that place as holy, or we think back to Moses, in the midst of the wilderness, watching the burning bush, a bush that is burned and not consumed, and God speaks out of this flame. And so now each of these disciples is sitting there, and the flame of God comes down and rests on each of them. Right? We, we get this imagery that, that God is coming down, but he's not coming down communally. Right? This isn't the way that God worked in the Old Testament where he would come down to a people and he would be in one place and they would come to that place to experience God. Right? They would build a temple and then God would send the shekinah glory of the Lord and they would send the fire down on that one place. No. It's different this time because the tongues of flame separate and rest on each and every individual there. Because Now we have entered into a time when the Holy Spirit will dwell in individuals, on individuals. We do not build a temple anymore because we are the temple. And so the imagery that we have is God coming down and consecrating 120 separate sanctuaries that will be for him a dwelling place. In a very real sense, God is fulfilling the prophecy that he made And I will remember their sin no more. God has fulfilled his promise. God has kept his word. He has come among his people to dwell with them and among them and in them. And so later on when Paul is writing to the church, he'll tell them, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you? Or to the Romans when he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to make yourselves, your souls, an offering. This is your spiritual act of worship. The whole paradigm shifts. Instead of us doing something external, all sacrifices now happen inside of ourselves. As we are individually consecrated into a temple that is then assembled with other temples to make God's church. God is moving in time to begin and to consecrate His people for their service. See, God has poured out His Holy Spirit on His church with wind and with fire. And now the women and the men will be empowered for service. And it is exactly after this that we begin to see what that service is going to look like. Verse 4 says, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretians and Arab- and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. See, before he died, Jesus promised to send his Holy Spirit and we have seen that it was necessary for Christ to leave before that Holy Spirit would arrive. And now that Christ has left, now the Holy Spirit is poured out. He said, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But Jesus has been glorified now. And so these streams of living water are erupting out of the people and they're spreading out over a dry land. From this point on in the book of Acts, the, gifts, the gift of the Holy Spirit becomes an integral part of what it means to become a Christian. To become a Christian means to have the Holy Spirit within you. So much so that Paul speaks of Christians as having the fruits of the Spirit, right? The Spirit is supposed to come up. It's supposed to well up inside of us. And we're supposed to have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. These are supposed to be part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian, because to be a Christian means to have the Holy Spirit within you, directing you, transforming you. Now the expression of this differs throughout the book of Acts. Sometimes we see that a person's been filled with the Spirit. Sometimes this experience is described as baptism in the Spirit. In other instances, the word is poured out. Or came upon or received, but in each case, the same thing's true. God consecrated his new and earthly temple and fills the believers with his divine presence. Brothers and sisters, that's us. This is happening to them, but but they're describing what happens to us. We get to be temples of the Holy Spirit. We get to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We get to be changed and made new. And what's the result of this? The result of this filling is a supernatural gift of languages that is often referred to as speaking in tongues. Now, we talked about speaking in tongues when we went through the book of Corinthians. Speaking in tongues is one of those things that we see in the book of Acts and we don't really understand it. And if we're honest, as Baptists, it's a little bit scary. And it's kind of weird. I was telling somebody this morning that when when I was... uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, we would go to these little bases out in the middle of nowhere, and the churches were kind of strange. And my wife and I would go, and we would tour churches, and I would be—we'd go into the back door and be Like, please don't be weird. Please don't be weird. Please don't be weird. Please don't be weird. And I just kind of sit there, like, oh, what are they going to start dancing with snakes? And so, the concept of speaking in tongues can be kind of frightening, but I. We need to kind of break this apart a little bit. When we talk about speaking in tongues, we're talking about one of two different kinds of ecstatic experience. The first is, uh, can be described as kind of like speaking in a heavenly prayer language. Okay, this is what Paul's talking about, we think, when he says, if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, right? So what on earth does that mean? Well, apparently, at times, Paul would speak in some kind of angelic tongue. Okay, Um, it's a very dramatic kind of gift. It's something that is very personal. And so Paul made some very clear descriptions about how that's supposed to work out. And he was basically saying, like, this is not edifying to the church and really shouldn't be done in the church. This is a private thing that you do in private, okay? And so the way that I've tried to explain this to people is this is not saying I want a banana over and over and over again until something weird comes out and you think you've had a, a mystical experience. It's more akin to those times in your life when you have prayed so deeply and so connectedly to God that you begin to feel things that you can't express with words. It's what Paul talks about when he says groaning's too deep for words. Or, or when we see, in, when the psalmist talks about deep crying out too deep. Or when Solomon talks about putting infinity in in the hearts of man and it being too great for them to understand. This is really what we're talking about, an experience that is so far beyond our understanding that we don't have words to describe it. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is the other kind of tongues. People are speaking in languages that they don't know. And so we see in the book of Acts that this kind of thing would happen as well. As God gives a very special gift at a very certain time so that in his providence, having brought together people from all over the world, they can begin to hear the gospel in their own heart language. Now we, we had a, a, an experience last week. We, we brought everybody together and we had combined worship. Okay? And combined worship can be beautiful and it can be deeply jarring sometimes. Right? It can be really beautiful because we're all worshiping together. It can be really jarring because there's a lot of different languages that are going on at the same time. That was two languages. We have 120 people each speaking different languages all at the same time. Can you even imagine what that must have been like? And yet in the midst of that, In the midst of that chaos, God is moving in a very real way. See, he has come to his people and he has said, you are to go to the nations and be my witnesses. And then at the very beginning of the church's life, he takes the nations and he brings the nations to the church. And he empowers the church to be able to do that which he's called them to do. I want to take a moment, brothers and sisters, and tell you that that moment We see that moment occurring in the United States today. You can walk five miles from this church in any direction and find 30 to 40 different languages. People from all over the world are coming to, that's right, San Antonio, of all places, because they heard we have good Mexican food. No. This is a resettlement zone for refugees. God has brought the nations to us. And he has given us the resources to be able to reach the nations for him. If we will show obedience like the church showed at Pentecost. And so God does this amazing thing at Pentecost. He pours out his spirit and the people begin to speak. And the people begin to understand. And and everybody becomes perplexed. It says over and over and over again in this passage... It says the people were amazed. They were perplexed. They were surprised. He's trying to get across to you. They didn't understand what was happening, and it was shocking. It was shocking because the men that were talking to them were Galileans. And Galileans were not respected by anyone. And so these people from cosmopolitan areas from all over the world have come to Jerusalem to have a mystical and spiritual experience, and they're surprised because they actually have a mystical experience. They've come to Jerusalem to find God, and they have in fact found God. We, we see throughout the book of Luke these kind of parallels, right? This is a parallel to Zechariah at the beginning of the book of Luke, who is in the temple, serving in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and an angel appears to him, and he's surprised by it. Sometimes we can spend our whole lives, guys, coming into the presence of God and be surprised when he actually shows up. (laughs) I, I wonder what it would be like in this church if the Spirit fell I wonder how uncomfortable we would be if the Holy Spirit really began to burn in this place and it began to make us uncomfortable and it began to make us do things that we didn't want to do and talk to people we didn't want to talk to and go out and meet people we didn't want to meet. I had a conversation with a member of our church and this person told me that uh, last year we had a, uh, had a refugee Thanksgiving And that it was really, really uncomfortable for them. We brought 40 refugees in from around the world to come and have Thanksgiving. And this person told me it was really, really uncomfortable. But that they went anyway. And that in going, their heart was transformed. In going and sitting across from a family that had just months before been living in rubble in a third world country, they had their hearts changed. Right? And they began to love these people. And they began to seek out these people. Right? That's what happens when the fire falls on a church. That's what happens when the fire falls on one person. Lives change. People change. That which is scary becomes not scary. That which is foreign becomes familiar. That's what transformation looks like. And that's what we begin to see in the church as these men... Who no one expects anything from. Right? There, there's a reason that over and over again in the Gospels, they say, Galilee? Can anything good come out of Galilee? Are you kidding me? The Savior's gonna come out of Galilee? I don't think so. I'm from Rosenberg. <laughs> that would be like somebody saying, Does the pastor of your church came from Rosenberg? Seriously? Can anything good come out of Rosenberg? The savior of the world came out of Galilee and everybody doubted him. These men have been called from the area around Galilee and they're looked down on because they're from a backwater. And yet it's these men that God has chosen to use to remake the world. And so these men come here. They they begin to hear these Galileans preaching to them in their own language and they say, what is going on? God chose Galileans to remake the world? But see, this is just the beginning of what the world being turned on its head looks like. This is just the beginning of what the first will be last and the last will be first will look like. This is just the beginning of the rapid, amazing transformation that's about to happen because God has poured out his spirit on his people. And when that happens, a fire gets lit. And that fire consumes everything around it. That fire begins to lick on the temple and it begins to spread out through Jerusalem and it begins to spread out through Judea and Samaria and that fire spreads to the very ends of the earth. And brothers and sisters, you are here this morning because that fire went to places that it should not have gone. Right? We can trace a line from the Pentecost to Christian communities all over the Mediterranean world. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the disciples didn't go and plant churches in Rome. People were already there. The disciples go and find churches that have already been planted as people from Pentecost spread out throughout the Mediterranean world and plant churches, and then those churches end up sending people further out. And this fire begins to spread until the pillars of the greatest empire in the world are shaken. I wonder if we're ready to shake the pillars of the greatest empire in the world. I wonder if we as one small church in the midst of San Antonio are ready to shake the pillars of a nation that has drifted away from God. I wonder, I wonder if we are ready to be used by God for his service in this place, in our nation, in the world. See, it can happen. He used disciples from Galilee. And he can use us. All it takes is the Holy Spirit to be poured out on us. The Holy Spirit to fill us up. And amazing things will begin to happen. But there is a a warning in the midst of this. There's a warning in the midst of this. See, God has brought the nations together to hear the gospel proclaimed by the, in the heart language of each of these people. will have to make a choice on how they're going to respond. See, the people are going to hear the gospel proclaimed to them, and some of them are going to be moved. And some of them are going to mock. We read in the, the final part here, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean But others mock saying they're filled with new wine. See, some were amazed and sought for the meaning of the miraculous event. Right? These are the kind of people that we always want to find when we go evangelizing, right? This is the person that you want to tell, you want to tell about Jesus, and they're like, What? He died, then what happened? He rose from the dead, no way. That's amazing. Where do I sign up? Like you hope you find that guy. Sometimes you do. Sometimes we don't evangelize because we think everybody is going to be a hardened atheist and not want to hear. But guys, there are people out there that have been primed. There are people out there whose hearts have been transformed and are prepared for the word and all they need is somebody to tell them. That guy that you've sat next to in your cubicle for the last 10 years, tell him. I have family members. And this is confession time. There are family members that I have not shared my faith with, because they seem like they are the most hardened jerks in the entire world—just hard-hearted, jerky people—and I just haven't wanted to have the conversation. I just didn't. I'm sure that doesn't resonate with anybody in here. I'm sure nobody's had that experience before. Everybody here is amazing, right? But I have. I said, I'm not going to talk to this guy. I'm just. And yet, I'm always surprised and a little ashamed when I find that they've accepted Christ. When I find out that God can transform people's hearts. And I'm like, yay! Oh man, I totally should have done that. And as kind of funky as that is, imagine how bad it would be on the last day when you run across that guy you've sat next to for 10 years that you didn't share your faith with and they look at you from across an unbridgeable chasm and they say, you knew and you didn't tell me? Some people though, some people, they respond the other way. Not everyone responded the way others scoffed and mocked the disciples. I want you to think about this. These men have heard a tornado rip through the house. They have seen fire fall from the sky and rest unburning upon the disciples, who then begin to preach in languages they don't understand. And their response is, well, these guys must be drunk because that's what drunk looks like. I've seen a, I was in the Marine Corps. I've seen a lot of drunk. It doesn't look like flaming tongues resting on somebody while they preach in a language that they don't know. I know that many of you haven't seen drunk, but I'm just telling you back when I was earning my testimony. And yet, these people see this and their immediate thought is to make fun and to scoff. If they had a camera, they would shoot a selfie and then meme it. That's who these people are. It's a surprise in the face of such a spectacular miracle that some would mock, but not really. Because if people can stand with the burning heat of the pillar of fire giving them a sunburn and still doubt the ability of God to do what he said he was going to do, they're going to doubt the flaming tongues resting on somebody's head. If somebody can walk through the Dead Sea, The Red Sea, my bad, not the Dead Sea. Somebody can walk through the Red Sea with the fish flopping around and the pillars of water on either side and then doubt the ability of God to bring them into the promised land. If people can eat the manna and the quail and complain because the food is a little mundane, then they're not going to respond to the tongues of flame and they're not going to respond to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We have this idea in our heads that if we just made the gospel a little bit more attractive, if we just said it a little bit more winsomely, if we just had a little bit more skill in the way that we presented it, then we would convince somebody to follow Christ. And that is a demonic lie. Because the only thing that makes a person accept the gospel is a transformed heart. Unless God comes into a person's life and takes that which is bitter and makes it sweet, or that which is ugly and makes it beautiful, they will not turn. And here's the reality, guys. That's not your responsibility. It's when we take that responsibility on ourselves that we stop evangelizing. When we think that we're responsible for somebody else's salvation, that's when we stop evangelizing. When we accept the fact that all our job is, is to bring the word to be witnesses of the things that have happened in our life, that's when we go out. That's when we see amazing things happen. It's funny that in the midst of this, right, in the midst of this large group of devout Jews, there are people that mock God. And it's even more amazing that in the face of this mockery of God, Peter preaches the best sermon that he has ever preached. And thousands upon thousands of people are saved. See, God is preparing his church for its mission. A mission that will send the disciples all over the world and will involve testifying to the amazing truth of the gospel with power in the face of radical disbelief. A mission that will change everything. See, God equipped his church for its mission. And he equipped his church for its mission by first baptizing it in the Holy Spirit and then filling the individual members with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important. When we hear that word, baptism in the Holy Spirit, it brings up some really weird stuff. We need to understand, when the Bible is talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's talking about being saved. It's talking about the Holy Spirit overwhelming us and transforming our heart and changing us so that we can accept Christ. Now, in, the, in this period of the New Testament, something, a one-time thing is happening. These men have accepted Christ. They accepted Christ much earlier in the Gospels. Right? God, Jesus breathed out His Holy Spirit on them in the, the last part of the book of John. Right? But now, as God is transforming the world and He's transforming His interaction, this, this Holy Spirit gets laid upon them, and then moving forward from there, every time a person is saved, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Right? And so, every single person that will be used in God's kingdom has to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They have to be baptized and changed, they have to be born again. You cannot serve God if you have not been saved. You can do amazing things, you can dig wells. You can feed poor people. In fact, you probably do a better job of feeding poor people than a lot of the church does. But you cannot serve God. You cannot glorify God if you have not been born again, if you have not been transformed, if you have not been changed. Every single person in this room has to be born again or when you die, you will face an unbridgeable gap between you and everyone else. All of the people that follow Christ. And so I beg you, in a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And if you feel the Lord moving in your not yet, I've still got a little bit more. That's, wish, that's wishful thinking, I know that. But you know what this watch means? Nothing. It means nothing. Absolutely nothing. I don't even turn it on. Right? In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you feel the Lord moving in your life, if you feel that upswell of the Holy Spirit, if things that haven't made sense to you are beginning to make sense, if you're beginning to have questions, if you come into, the contact, into contact with the gospel and begin to wonder, what does this mean? Come forward. We can help you understand what it means. But brothers and sisters, many of us have been saved. Many of us have been saved and we live dry, empty lives. We live like we're not. We're supposed to have the Holy Spirit, but we have quenched it so hard that it is as dry and dusty as the bottom of our baptism. Brothers and sisters, if that's you, you need to be filled. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to confess your sins. You need to repent of the things that you've been doing. You need to seek God out in his scripture and through prayer. And you need to ask him to fill you. Because you were not made to live in defeat. You were not made to live a dry and empty life. You were made to be lit on fire for Christ. And to burn so brightly that the world that lives in darkness could see. So brothers and sisters, if you have lived Dry and empty lives. Today is the day that you change. Today is the day that you make a decision to change your life. To begin to do those things that you need to do to be remade in the image of the one who saved you. To be recast in the image of Christ. We are here as a church to help you do that. That is our job. Our mission is to equip ordinary people to live the extraordinary gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not perfect. We don't pretend to be. But we know who is. And if you come here, we will put you with other imperfect, broken people who will let you down. And together, you will stumble blindly towards your Savior. Because that's the way that God intended it. If you have a problem with it, you can take it up with him. He's my boss. He keeps regular office hours. So whether you want to come forward to accept Christ or whether you want to come forward to join this church or whether you have just been broken by life and you need to be lifted up, I would encourage you to come forward so that we can pray for you. Please join us as we sing our song of invitation. Please rise with me. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.